More Miami Mess. The city manager's wife is the city's interior decorator. The homeless seek a home in Cutler Bay, and Venezuela's alleged crime king gets Christmas release. This is the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll look at WLRN's revelation that city manager Art Noriega's wife has gotten big contracts to refurnish city offices. It's yet another Miami conflict of interest controversy. We'll also examine why Cutler Bay is balking at a proposal to place homeless seniors and veterans into transitional housing there. And we'll discuss President Biden's decision to free Venezuela's alleged corruption mastermind, Alex Saab, from his Miami jail cell. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. If it seems like we talk a lot these days about corruption, conflicts of interest, and general dysfunction inside the city of Miami government, it's because the city of Miami just keeps giving us a lot to talk about. Mayor Francis Suarez's very lucrative moonlighting, including consulting work for Saudi Arabia, the $63 million civil verdict against Commissioner Joe Carollo for harassing local businessmen, former Commissioner Alex Diaz de la Portilla's arrest on bribery and money laundering charges, and so on. This week, WLRN discovered another potential conflict of interest problem, this time involving city manager Art Noriega and his wife, Michelle Pradere Noriega. Since Noriega took his post four years ago, the Hialeah Furniture Company his wife's family owns has received almost $450,000 in contracts to remodel city government offices. Noriega told WLRN everything was done, quote, by the book. But ethics experts warn it may violate Florida law. Either way, it's not what we wanted to hear about Miami to start the new year. What's your reaction to this sort of Miami mess? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or you can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now in the studio are the two WLRN investigative reporters who broke this story, Danny Rivero and Joshua Ceballos. Gentlemen, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Tim. Happy New Year. And I guess I should also say happy Three Kings Day, because if you're an investigative reporter these days, the city of Miami just seems to be the gift that keeps on giving. Danny, how did you guys discover this problematic business arrangement between the city and the city manager's wife? Well, like a lot of reporting we do, I mean, sometimes people tell us things and we we got a, a tip that uh, there was something worth looking into in this case. And um Followed it up, um, got the necessary records from the city, started looking through it, invoices, um, you know, the just the, the list, the long list of contracts that have been entered into with this with the, these companies and the and the city. And we started just reviewing it. And one of the first invoices on it that that we reviewed, actually, it was um there was a contract there was a, a few contracts to renovate the city manager's office this is city manager arthur noriega right and on the top of the invoice it says city manager's office area city hall and the salesperson is listed michelle pradere who is his wife right left out was the hyphenated part of the last name that she uses in in other places so it said michelle pradere his office 
And then from there, we really started saying, okay, I mean, there's something here because just on the face of it, and we, we did more exploring, more reporting, and we'll talk about what all the findings that we found, but that's really where we realized that there really is something to this because on the face of it, it looked like the city manager hired his own wife to do right. work to almost, it was th over $37,000 uh, to remodel the, the office. And the formal name of this Hialeah Furniture Company is? It's it's Pradere Manufacturing. Factoring, right. right. But, but, I, but I will say what, what also we noticed is that company is owned by the, by the city manager's in-laws, right? Okay. That that this, this is important. The the invoice was the city manager's wife's company. She yeah. that is her company, but it was paid out to the in-laws company. Right. It's one of these situations where there's a lot of different company names. There's Pradere Designer Workspaces, Pradere uh, Office Products, but the company that the money is going to is Pradere Manufacturing, which is the in-laws company. But we're still talking about relatives. Right. And right. under the definition of nepotism, that includes relatives. Uh, when, when we're talking about that kind of conflict of interest potential problem, no? I, I mean... The legal definition, someone else will have to 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 talk about it. But the, from what from what what we've seen, I mean, there's very specific laws and and guidance on direct and immediate family members, right? And um, you know, the the fact of it was, it was invoiced by his wife's company. The payment was submitted to her parents' company, and when we spoke to the city manager, he said, "Well, you know, technically that's not her company; it's it's her parents' company, but." Right, and then we and we'll get we can get yeah, into yeah. that. Yeah. Okay. No. It, it, I, I, it, obviously, <laughs> I, I knew this would get complicated, but Josh, as, as I mentioned in the introduction, the c city manager Art Noriega insisted to you guys that this was all done quote by the book, which would lead one to believe that there was transparency involved in all this, like competitive bidding. But it turns out that's not quite the case, right? Right. This is, like you said, it's going to get a little complicated. First, I, I do think it's important to say, and something that Art Noriega stressed to us, is that um, her his wife's family company has been doing business with the city for a long time, since at least 2008, 2009. Right. And, uh, which is fine which until is, yeah. your husband becomes the city manager. Becomes the city manager. Yeah. He became city manager in 2020, correct. So when it comes to the, the competitive bidding, basically, so the... Her her, uh, her family's company is is um, they're an approved vendor under a state of Florida contract, mm -hmm. and that that state of Florida contract is competitively solicited. Like they they look they do the competitive bidding and they find like a list of vendors, and then the city um, in two thousand and six they passed a resolution that right. says um, city departments can use this any vendors under the state of Florida contract without a commission vote. And the contract says you don't need to do competitive bidding because the state has already done it. Right. So what effectively that means is normally governments will do competitive bidding um, in a public transparent way so that they can get the the best price for a product or a service. Um, and so, But because Pradere Manufacturing and Designer Workspaces is under the state contract, the city could just in, work with them without having to go through like a public meeting right. process. They, they, they could open these things up to bids. They could see if they could get cheaper rates or whatnot. They were not required, required to do that, right. but, but they could have right. done and that. And so this resolution would seem to be the key here that sort of opens the door as wide as it has to a situation like this. I mean, yeah. And in, in some ways, I think that that the, 
the terms, the, the way that the city manages that contract is worth yeah. looking into. It's not really at the center of what we're talking about, but it does, you know, now that we know this exists, how many other contracts are, are open to the same backdoor, you don't have to do bidding kind of uh, situations. I mean, we don't know it, but... But it seems to fall under the category of lax oversight, to say the least. Yeah. Or, or, one, the, one thing one thing we did include is the, the city of Doral is under the same state contract. Right. Mm-hmm. And they had a deal essentially with Pradere Manufacturing for over $100,000 in furniture for the city. And the city actually found in Doral, they said, well, it seems like a lot. So maybe let's open this up for bidding. And they did. And they saved taxpayers almost $50,000 just because they they actually took different offers. And in in the city of Miami, they told us, they have not done that for any of these contracts. And Josh, you wanted to weigh in on that point? Yeah, and I just wanted to... uh, play devil's advocate here. I, I think in the defense of governments that use these kinds of state contracts to do things quickly, I, they, it's generally done to save money, right? Because, you know, the state of Florida, economies of scale, and and right. they get these vendors and they're able to do things quickly and cheaply. But I guess Doral showed that that's not always the case that is Well, cheaper. and Miami, we're yeah. finding, as yeah. you found in your report this week, that that's not always the case. Danny, your reporting suggests that the city of Miami ended up overpaying for a lot of the furniture Michelle Pradere Noriega's family's company provided, correct? I mean, including $17,860 for a 17-foot conference table that can be found online for about 3000 bucks. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know if I can say they overpaid for it. I think uh-huh. it presents some pretty common sense questions about if you can get a 17 foot conference table for a few thousand dollars, which uh-huh. we could find online. Okay. Why is the city choosing a $17,000 right. conference okay. table? I'll amend that to say presumptively <laughs> overpaying. Right. I think yeah, they, yeah. I think the brand of the table was very expensive when, you know, it brings the question, did you have to buy this brand of table? Yeah. yeah it, it just, you know, seeing all these contracts and the invoices just opens up the door to actually start scrutinizing like, how they're spending money in these offices. Yeah, exactly. And Josh, when you confronted city manager Noriega with the fact that this looks very much like a textbook case of, on the surface anyway, official nepotism that enriched him and his wife at Miami taxpayer expense, or at least raised that question of the potential of that appearance, what was his response? Yeah, so he was very, uh, very clear and vehement that uh, he has no involvement in any purchases, that mm-hmm. there's a fi- effectively a firewall between him and any purchases of furniture with his wife's company. When he was appointed that same year, he sent a memo to the mayor and commissioners and said, hey, my wife runs this company. Um, I recuse myself from any business decisions. Okay. All right. That's that's and so that's that's basically what he. That's was an important part of that of that to bring out. And let's hear, in fact, what Noriega told WLRN in your report this week. I had zero involvement in any of the acquisition or purchase of furniture at all. So you can ask me about invoices and how they got paid. I, I couldn't tell you if I tried, by the way, because I I've never seen them, and I again played no role in it. Danny and um, you know. C- City manager Noriega, as you heard, he says he played no role in this. He points to the memo he issued in 2020. Right. I I mean, I just do want to to be clear for the audience. He he did issue that memo. It right. was very clear. He said he was going to recuse himself. Also, you know, there's real questions. Is that enough? A majority of the commissioners on the commission right now were not in office when he issued that memo. Uh-huh. So... You know, including it, new commissioner right. Miguel Gavela. 
Correct. And, and, and so let's 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 go then, because you guys also interviewed Stephen Muro, an advisor to new Miami Commissioner Miguel Gabela, who said they rejected having Michelle Pradera Noriega's family's company furnish Gabela's new commission office because of these concerns. Let's hear what he had to say. I asked, is this Art Noriega's wife? And he just, you know, looked at me and I scrolled down and it said, um, I think her name is Michelle or something. And I said, absolutely not. We're not going to use this because I don't want to, you know, we're coming in with a clean slate and I don't want anything that sounds like improprieties or quick pro quos or anything like that. Josh, give us the context of, yeah. of that comment. So Miguel Gabella was elected <clears throat> late last year in November. And after his swearing in, uh, Miro says someone uh, from the city's general services administration uh, approached him and said, hey, if you need to refurnish your office, um, you could go with this uh, this company that we already have as a vendor. Here's their catalog. And Miro says he scrolled down and saw Michelle's name and it clicked in his head and, and he said, wait, is this Art Noriega's wife? And at that point, that's when he rejected it. But Danny, is a person like Miro then thinking, okay, even though Art Noriega issued that memorandum in 2020 mm-hmm. saying, look, I want you all to know that my wife... Is the feeling amongst people like Miro is that even if Noriega was advising the city government that my wife is doing this business for the city, that the fact that he is the city manager made it less kosher for her to be having these contracts? Uh, Miro actually used that phrase when we talked to him. He said it just doesn't feel kosher. It doesn't feel like it like it's something that that should happen. You know, whether you know or don't know a lot of people in the departments that make these decisions. It's just. Are they an approved vendor? You know, then then yes or no, and they they don't necessarily know that there's a connection. Mm-hmm. So people might sign off on things and just not know. But Miro told us, you know, when you know, it just sounds it sounds bad. Yeah. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. We're talking about Miami's latest conflict of interest controversy involving the city manager and the lucrative city contracts his wife's family's company has received. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Now, Danny, the ethics experts that you spoke with for this report did suggest that even though this might have been done, quote, by the book, according to Miami rules, the arrangement may very well have violated state ethics laws. Do you foresee an investigation as a result? You know, talking to ethics people, um, they they tend to be lawyers and they talk like lawyers, right? (laughs) Um, So, you know, you can only get so much out of it, I, I, I guess I could say. What I was repeatedly told is these are the kind of things that would be thoroughly investigated if a complaint is filed. Okay. Uh, um, to my knowledge, no complaint has been filed. I, I have no reason to believe that. Nobody's told me that. But if a complaint was to, was to be filed, I've, I've been told, you know, investigators would look very closely at, at various aspects of what we've been talking about. And here. Would, would, would Noriega Josh have an out? Because again, according to that memo, you know, he's not directly involved in, you know, uh, in, 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 in handing out right. these kinds of contracts to his wife. And that's exactly what he said, is mm-hmm. that you know he, he sends no business his wife's way. He, he made a disclosure. Um, he didn't seek out an ethics opinion when he became uh, th- when he was appointed the city manager. But he says... Should, I, should he have? That's, I think that's up for other people to decide. He said okay. it was just a decision on his part that he did not. Other people have told me like he should have sought one out. But he says there's a firewall. I'm, I'm okay. I'm not violating 
the rules and I and I and I want to be clear like we're not saying like this yes he is is guilty we're presenting this is something that raised questions for us and so sure. we wanted to and, raise and, these, these questions out and and, and you know the city manager he, he told us that when he came in he had a discussion with his wife who yeah. was already a vendor and contractor with the city yeah. about whether she should stop contracting with the city because he was now the executive basically the executive of the city. Uh-huh. And he said they they came to a decision that no, they shouldn't. So we know that this was discussed. It was um, considered. They made the decision that, you know, she could ki- continue doing business with the city as he was the head. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's what we know. Yeah. So, Josh, how does the city fix this kind of problem in the future? Will we possibly see now, especially as a result of your report, a move to do away with that 2006 resolution that seemed to open the door so wide to, to stuff like this, to potential conflicts of interest problems like this? So I haven't heard anything um, about specifically the resolution or targeting the resolution, but I know like the two new commissioners have come in on this anti-corruption uh, platform. And, commissioner right. and and those commissioners are? are Miguel Gabella and Damien Pardo. Pardo, and, right. And, and Pardo specifically told us that um, in, in, new, in the commission meetings coming up this year he wants to introduce new guardrails and ethics uh ethics trainings and things like that to ensure that this these kinds of things might not happen danny do you see any reform of this nature on the horizon uh i mean again i would point to our conversation with commissioner pardo um he does he has said that he wants to put some of these things to the top of the agenda there's been no shortage of things happening in the city of Miami that call various things into question. And and he says, you know, it, it, it's not just for the elected officials that need to know this stuff. It's for city staff. It's for, right. the, the, you know, the people low down on the totem pole that Who we are never making these of. procurement decisions right. on a daily basis. Right. Danny Rivero is WLRN's investigative reporter. Joshua Savayos is WLRN's local government and investigations reporter. Gentlemen, Happy New Year. Thanks, Tim. Happy New Year. Still to come. The county tries to sell Cutler Bay on a proposal to help the homeless secure transitional housing. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Anyone who's worked with the homeless knows that providing them shelter is only half the battle. Getting them back on their financial feet and back into independent housing is the necessary ultimate goal. Otherwise, the homelessness problem only grows. Florida has the nation's third largest homeless population behind California and New York. But in South Florida, Miami-Dade County is widely credited with a model for confronting homelessness, namely its Homeless Trust, funded by a special 1% restaurant tax. Right now, the Homeless Trust is poised to buy a hotel in Cutler Bay and convert it to housing for seniors and veterans coming out of homelessness. The Homeless Trust has pursued similar projects in other areas of Miami-Dade County, like North Miami. But Cutler Bay residents and its mayor are balking at the idea, and their resistance is raising questions again about how and where to transition the homeless back into mainstream life. What are your thoughts about that question? Have you experienced homelessness? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now to discuss this are the two leaders on each side of this discussion. 
First is Ron Book. He's the chairman of the Miami-Dade County Homeless Trust. Also with us is Cutler Bay Mayor Tim Mirbot, who's here in the studio with me. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Thank you for being here, Tim. Mr. Book, per our arrangement, we'll start with you so we can hear the Homeless Trust's proposal, and then we'll pivot to Mayor Mirbot to hear Cutler Bay's rebuttal. Let's start, let's start with well, the... I'm, I'm sorry? No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Let's start with the fact that the Homeless Trust and Cutler Bay started this project four years ago, if I'm correct. Can you briefly tell us, Mr. Book, how this came about and why it came about and, and, and where it's at now? Let's start by making clear what you've already said. This is not a homeless shelter. Right. It never will be. This is an apartment complex. It is for it is intended to be permanent supportive housing. It is intended to move people that have either been in shelter or are fresh situationally homeless individuals, not chronic, not identified with mental health, substance abuse and alcohol issues ready to immediately go into housing okay and this and, and, is no different than any of the five thousand other units of housing right. that we oversee every single day and, if we want to reach an end to homelessness it is about creating permanent supportive housing opportunities for those that otherwise are unsheltered or in shelters in okay. our community. And is this proposal specifically then for seniors and veterans coming out of homelessness? Our largest growing population, and it's been this way for eight years, are senior citizens. Uh, one in every right. four, one one in every four individuals. Right, but Mr. Book, I'm, I'm, ask, I'm asking specifically about this project, this it's acquisition of the Lee Canta Inn. Will it be serving only seniors and veterans is that the idea behind this particular project it, it is not but it will be largely senior citizens that will be living here okay. as well as veterans okay why was the la quinta in site chosen uh for this there and can you remind us exactly what street address more or less we're talking about there in cutler bay we began identifying places within the county that had willing sellers for buildings that could otherwise be repurposed. Right. North Miami, we purchased an ALF called uh, Mia Casa. We, re we are repurposing a building off of Chrome, creating 190 units of single individual housing for males. We identified the La Quinta because we had a willing seller, seller right. interested in selling the property to us. Okay. We began the process a long time ago right in 2020 as I, as, as I as correct. i've read yes okay correct. correct and contrary to what is said we have been communicating with the city we didn't just begin communicating with them 30 or 60 or 90 days ago okay now communications went back to early last year is it accurate to say that early last year it appeared to the homeless trust that the cutler bay city commission was behind the project no okay we communicated with the management of the city about what we were looking to do. And I would remind everybody, the property under the city zoning code or under the county's RTZ rules is properly zoned and land proper land use is on this property, making it ideal to be converted 
to permanent supportive housing. Mr. Book, talk with us a bit about why organizations like the Homeless Trust feel this kind of housing unit arrangement is good, not just for transitioning folks out of homelessness, but also good for the local municipalities where, where, where this, this uh, projects like this are located? First of all, the crime statistics on this hotel and an adjacent hotel are off the charts. We believe we not only put this property to better use by creating permanent supportive housing, but we believe the criminal justice statistics will go down dramatically. Mm-hmm. We have over 5,000 individuals living in similar units around this county every single day and you never read a word about them being problematic this is an issue of nimbyism they just simply don't want individuals that are formerly homeless in their backyard so you feel it's nimbyism nimbyism of course being not in my backyard that we we often see in in situations like this but you mentioned recently that a lot of this has to do with a public misperception of who the homeless really are especially in cases like this can you elaborate a little on what about what you think that misperception is i think you mentioned a little earlier but please elaborate look people have a misperception that with formerly homeless individuals you're buying yourself into criminal justice, substance abuse, alcohol problems. That is just not the case. That is a stereotype. Look at formerly homeless individuals. We have we have individuals we take off the streets, we put into shelter, we get them ready to be reassimilated into productive, uh, self-sustaining citizens in the community. Right. And the opportunity to house 107 individuals at this property is extremely important right. for the long-term end of homelessness in now, our community. But is the fact here that under the terms of this proposal, this project somewhere in Cutler Bay will get done one way or the other? I mean, is Cutler Bay now has until the end of this month, if I'm correct, to propose an alternative location. And, and either way, then the Miami-Dade County Commission steps in and takes a vote on it? The... The county commissioner from the area, Commissioner Cohen Higgins, brought a resolution asking the mayor to review whether or not there are any other potential locations within her district, eight commission district, okay. as an alternative okay. to the La Quinta purchase. Okay, and we're we gonna we're gonna to move forward with La Quinta unless okay. an alternative site is proposed. Okay. And we're gonna we're gonna get to Mayor Mirabot now. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. We're talking about Miami-Dade County's efforts to transition the homeless back into mainstream housing and Cutler Bay's current resistance to to that project. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Mayor Mirabot, let's turn to you now to help us understand why you and so many residents in Cutler Bay oppose this proposal or at least reluctant to sign on to it. Let me start by asking, is it accurate or not accurate to suggest that Cutler Bay initially was on board, or or, or is that a, that a misperception in itself? That would be a, a misrepresentation. Okay. You know, no one from the Homeless Trust has ever reached out and, and spoke to me about that. As a matter of fact, I was actually in a, a meeting that I called in the town of Cutler Bay and the South Aid Coalition to discuss homelessness, and uh, Vicki Millette was in the attendance there, never mentioned it to me once, and we were there for a good two hours, so... Um, I do uh, agree that they d- did reach out to our staff. I'm understanding back in July, considering this uh, project, uh, we let them, let them, hey, you know, the minimum unit size is not what Cutler Bay standards are. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I never heard anything further about it up until they started moving forward with the purchase. Why do you and a large portion of Cutler Bay residents now uh, oppose it? You recently said, for example, that the project, quote, doesn't fit in for Cutler Bay. Why? Right. Well, first, I mean, I, you know, I agree with Ron Book. It seems like it's a, it's a good program, mm-hmm. um, but all, but you can't just you know, use a, a big brush to paint everything the same. Cutler Bay is a little bit different. So you have to consider more than just the $14 million in cost that the county is going to be outlaying for these 107 units, but there's a cost to the town of Cutler Bay as well. Cutler Bay is a working class community. Uh, in my opinion, you know, we've often been overlooked. Um, we've had to take a lot of a brunt of what the rest of the county doesn't want. We have our beautiful Mount Trashmore, you know, in our area that we're, you know, we all know and love. So Landfill. And, and it seems like that, that quite often happens where the, the less affluent areas need to go ahead and take a stronger burden in supporting society as a whole. Now, Cutler Bay's done a lot of great things, I think, in preparing for help society as a, as a whole. We know we have a housing issue in Dade County. And government subsidized housing is not going to be this, what's going to get us out of this. What's going to get us out of this is supply. Supply and demand has always been the main driver of prices and rental units. Um, there was a, a recent article in the Herald talking about in Boise, Idaho, where they spent, uh, they created another thousand units and rents dropped uh, over five to six percent. And that's what Cutler Bay is doing. We've, our zoning allows for greater development in that area for the housing that we so sorely need. On that on that La Quinta site, uh, site right there, right. rather than putting 102 units just for the for homeless transition, it could be redeveloped into over 500 units, providing more affordable housing for the entire town of Cutler Bay. Right. But is this also, uh, to a certain extent, about Cutler Bay development concerns, especially the Southland Mall project? Th- that is one of the biggest parts about this. So you would think that you would want to encourage as much development of affordable housing in Dade County. And what you don't want to do is give anybody, any developer, a reason to, to, to take pause of continuing development. Cutler Bay has finally been able uh, to uh, get a development in our area of over $1.5 billion to building over 4,500 units of housing in Cutler Bay. And it, it's going to be a, the jewel of the South. It's going to create an economic hub where all of our citizens that don't have to drive an hour north anymore, they can stay in the, in the city to work, live, and, and, and go to school and all of these things by pigeonholing this one area and, and taking out of it not only loses the 500 units you could possibly build there, mm-hmm. but also creates distance, not, not even disincentive, but causes pause for people for building more units in the area. It doesn't help our housing crisis. But what about Mr. Book's argument that Cutler Bay residents are perhaps misperceiving the nature of the homeless population that will be living at this particular La Quinta in sight? Full disclosure here, as you and I were discussing earlier, the Church Parish Poverty Aid Organization I work with, and I'm from Palmetto Bay, just next to Cutler Bay, has often placed people who've been evicted from their homes here into rooms at that same La Quinta Inn, sometimes for long stays, and we've never heard complaints from local residents about that. So help us understand what's at the heart of the Cutler Bay's reservations about these 107 units and how they'd be used in this particular case. And and that's the other part, because there is a lot of questions that aren't answered. Um, I heard Mr. Book say that this is, first he said this is going to be for seniors and veterans, and when you question him on it, kind of back that off. So we don't know really okay. what's going to go there because it's never put in writing. It's, it's a lot of lip service of what's going to go there. Okay. It could be, you know, we've heard everybody say this is going to be a needle exchange program. There's going to be uh, serving food there. We really don't know. So, you know, I, I think the Homeless Trust could go ahead and give us a lot of reassurance by agreeing to some of the covenants that the developers next door have asked for and many of our citizens have asked for, um, but we haven't 
haven't got any of that other than generalities, but there's nothing been locked down to take away their fear. So maybe mm-hmm. the Hunters Trust could lock it down. It's like, you know what, this is for okay. seniors over 55, or this is for veterans, or whatever it could be to take that fear away, but they refuse to do that. We have Warren on yeah, the line yeah. from yeah. West Palm. Mr. Book, I, I have to take a, a call right now from Warren in Palm Beach, who has uh, some input on this uh, uh, situation. Warren, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Thank you very much for taking my call. Years back when I lived in New York, while I was out getting, I'm a freelance uh, writer, among other things, a researcher, I was out getting my last assignment from Marvel Comics when a fire occurred at my home studio and archive, which left me homeless. Fortunately, I had done favors for the late husbands of two widows in the building. It was temporarily put up in the apartment of one of them while that person was in Florida. I moved to Florida. On the way, the movers tried to hijack my remaining property. Okay. And then when I was down here, I lived with my folks. As soon as my, there was a dearth of professional opportunities, even for someone. Okay, Warren. Warren, I, 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 I understand your situation. Do you, do you have a specific point about this project that well, we're talking about? Uh, the society that allows people to become homeless because of rising costs of housing or okay. people being unable to get a job because with a computer application you okay. need one in order right. to get one. Thank- it's imperative on the society to do things to get okay. people off. The- Warren, Warren, thanks very much. Mayor, I have I have one last question for you before I go back to, to Mr. Sure. Book. If the La Quinta Inn location is not right, you have mentioned alternative sites further south. Is that is that? We are we're in the process of still looking. And I just want to go back to that. I, I agree that there, services like this are needed, but right. you have to make sure that it's a fit for everybody. The homeless trust only has to be responsible to their uh, to their task of providing homeless shelter. We as elected officials need to make sure that we look at the, the whole community, and okay. and that's what we're doing. But no, we don't have, we don't have a specific site yet. But yes, we are working hard trying to okay. find alternative you, sites. Okay, so that that will be coming, Mr. Book. In the thirty seconds or so we have left, is there one thing here the mayor has asserted that you would quickly like to respond to before we close things here? The mayor uses words that are so false and insightful in an attempt to incite the community against the project. He knows full well there will never be a needle exchange at this residential property, and we have been clear we would covenant that. Okay. Number two, we have been clear that it would never be a shelter, and we would covenant that. Number three, we have been extremely clear that we would absolutely at a minimum, restrict the residents to not less than 60% of senior citizens. Okay. So when he makes those statements, he knows they're false. All right, I'm going to have to leave it there, gentlemen, unfortunately, for time. Ron Book is chairman of the Miami-Dade County Homeless Trust. Tim Mirbot is the mayor of Cutler Bay. Gentlemen, again, thank you for speaking thank with you. us, and Happy New Year. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come, Venezuela's alleged criminal mastermind was in Miami awaiting trial. Was freeing him in a prisoner swap right? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. 
Whether it's U.S. prosecutors or South American investigative journalists, plenty of people regard Alex Saab as a mastermind behind the epic criminal corruption that's responsible for Venezuela's economic collapse and humanitarian crisis. It's why Saab was sitting in a federal detention center here in Miami awaiting trial on money laundering charges last month until the Biden administration freed him on December 20th as part of a swap for 10 Americans being held in Venezuelan prisons. Given Saab's alleged crimes, which include bilking hundreds of millions of dollars from contracts for desperately needed food imports and public housing construction in Venezuela, the prisoner exchange was a controversial move. The U.S. believes it could help move Venezuela's dictatorial regime to hold democratic elections later this year, but others fear it might embolden the regime to take those negotiations less seriously. Do you think the Saab swab was the right or wrong move? Do you have family or friends in Venezuela affected by this kind of corruption? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now to examine that question is the Miami Herald's federal justice reporter, Jay Weaver, who, like me, has long been following the Saab saga. Jay, it's always great to have you with us. Thank you, Tim, for having me. Let's start here by reminding people who Alex Saab is. We, of course, need to mention that he's actually not Venezuelan. He's Colombian. And yet he ends up being the Venezuelan regime's top business dealmaker to the point that President Nicolas Maduro designated him, quote, a Venezuelan diplomat. How did this unusual relation come about? And Jay, I think we've got some noise in the background there. Uh, if, if, if it's possible to uh, to either turn down a TV or a radio or. No, the problem is um, I'm having some construction done on our front oh, door. And okay. I apologize. <laughs> no problem. It's being replaced and I hope it's not too disruptive to you and your listeners. No, I no apologize. problem. Um, so I've got the door shut, but look, Saab is, is somebody that is sort of created out of a, a you know, a spy novel. He's exactly. Not Venezuelan. He is Colombian and he somehow going back more than a decade insinuated his way into the good graces of the predecessor to Nicolas Maduro. That would be of course, Hugo Chavez, yes. the former president. And he somehow became their go-to guy for all kinds of uh, dealings involving the government. Yeah. He became extremely wealthy through these relationships by doing contract work. And he was right. you know, doing both food supplies as well as housing supplies, you know, at a time when the socialist governments of both, both these leaders were in a free fall where inflation was, you know, rapidly rising and right. where people were leaving in droves of millions to the United States, mm -hmm. to Colombia, to other Latin American countries. And so he somehow became their go-to guy. Exactly how he became close to them, nobody has ever really made that very clear. Yeah. But he has had access, just like a lot of the other Bolivarguesis, who are Venezuelans, right. who are politically connected from the right families, from the right pedigree, who were given access to government contracts and then allowed to use those payments and wash them through government exactly. currency exchanges. Now, that, 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 there's the problem. Those contracts, though, uh, involve 
as I mentioned before, things that greatly affected Venezuelans' lives as the economy was collapsing, food imports, public housing, the finances of the country's crucial state-run oil firm, PDVSA. Now, investigative journalists in Venezuela like Armando Info dot, uh, point, uh, excuse me, Armando dot info have told me that they consider Saab, quote, the symbol of Venezuela's kleptocracy. So is it accurate to say, Jay, that the crooked deal Saab engineered helped bring about Venezuela's terrible economic collapse? Well, let's just say he's a major player. There are others. Raul Guerin, a TV mogul in Caracas who owns TV stations, insurance companies, a former practicing lawyer, very close to both presidential leaders. He is probably at the pinnacle in terms of just influence and connections. Yeah. He, of course, worked with others. And there have been dozens of these so-called Venezuelan kleptocrats charged in the United States. Why? Because after they steal. Yeah. Uh, Jay, I think I think we're uh, you're we've lost you there. But I mean, you're pointing out. You were, I think you were coming. Yeah, I think we were losing you there for a second, but you were coming to the point that. You there? Yes. You were coming to the no, point. I was going to say that the reason why Saab is even charged here, along with all these other Venezuelan kleptocrats, is because they moved their ill gotten gains yeah. um, that were allowed to be taken by the Maduro and Chavez regimes to the United States. They exploited our markets as well as the European markets. Right. That's the other talent that Saab is is known for, the other alleged talent, I should say, laundering all that corrupt cash all around the world. Dick Gregory, a former U.S. prosecutor here in Miami who was involved in the early investigation of Saab, once told me that Saab is, quote, the master of trade-based money laundering, and Venezuela has been robbed blind with every transaction that he does. And as you pointed out, that's really the part that U.S. prosecutors were most interested in, right? Yes, and in fact, the reality is is that his, his swap, and as you pointed out in your introduction, for the 10 Americans and the release of 20 Venezuelan prisoners, you know, looks good on paper. But it just shows you how badly they wanted him. Why did they want him so badly? Saab is a very, very questionable guy. He's yeah. a double agent. He was even cooperating with the DEA back in 2018 and 19. Right. He was going to turn himself in. And then eventually he gets caught on an envoy mission to Iran to supply them with medicines. And then he has this long odyssey fighting his extradition from Cape Verde to Miami before he's eventually turned over to the Venezuelans. Right. And I I, I should point out, Jay, that that, that, since you mentioned that uh, it was that U.S. indictment against him that got him arrested in Cape Verde off Africa back in 2020. Um, And 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 I think you're coming to the point that just how badly did U.S. prosecutors want to get him then extradited here to face trial? They made a deal to bring him here, and they're very disappointed in this swap. I can tell you that. And so is the Justice Department. Uh But Biden granted him clemency. We can get into that in a moment and why that Mm -hmm. happened. But why is SOP so important? A lot of people feel they should have never have turned him over because he knows where all the bodies are buried. Mm -hmm. He knows about all the contracts. He knows about all the players behind the contracts. He knows where all the money is buried all over the world, whether it be in Switzerland and in Malta, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, Switzerland. I, I, I did a story a few years ago on how he was trying to launder money through Bulgaria, of all places. Right. And so 
He knew where all this money was. They could have squeezed him as he was facing trial and facing 20 years in prison and never seeing his wife and family again and said, look, yep. man, we can make this easy for you. And well, they would have protected him. Let's, but let's, they didn't get allowed to do that because right. he was still fighting you know, the fact that the government was charging him while he was an envoy, claimed immunity mm -hmm. that had not been resolved yet. He was going to lose that argument, according let's, to a lot of experts. Let's 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 so, let's I, I have to take a break here, Jade. The FCC thing here. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. We're talking about the Biden administration's release of Venezuela's alleged criminal mastermind, Alex Saab, in a prisoner swap just before Christmas. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So in 2021, as you pointed out, Jay Saab was extradited to Miami, and until last month, he was sitting in the federal detention center downtown awaiting trial. The Venezuelan regime's big fear, as you pointed out, was that he would sing and expose just how monstrously corrupt Maduro and his henchmen really are. Um, do you think Saab did a lot of that kind of talking to U.S. officials in the end? I mean, you mentioned that he had talked with the DEA in years past, but just how much did he sing, let's say, to U.S. officials this time? I think we've lost Jay. Jay, are you still there? I am not. We are not hearing Jay. Well, I think one of the points that Jay was going to make there um, was was that that was, as he pointed out, one of the big fears of the Maduro regime in Venezuela was that th that um, Saab was going to spill a lot of really incriminating information as if we didn't have enough already about the Maduro regime and how corrupt it is. Um, and again, that brings us to December 20th and the Biden administration then suddenly releasing Swab, Assab in that swap yeah, for 10 Americans. Um, Jay, what uh, do we have you back, Jay? Yes, you do. Sorry. Okay, about sorry that. No problem. Sorry. Jay, what do you think was the calculus behind Biden freeing a guy accused of being one of this hemisphere's worst criminal mercenaries. Was it just to get those Americans back home who were in prison in Venezuela, or is there something larger at play here, do you think? I think it's both. I think that it was a, an attempt to get people who were wrongfully detained. There were 10 altogether, six of whom were wrongfully detained. It also right. included a notorious figure named Fat Leonard, a Malaysian businessman who had been yeah. convicted of bribing Navy, the Navy and contracts in the San Diego area, and he had fled to Venezuela. Sure, there was that, plus there were 20 Venezuelan prisoners, but they gave up an awful lot. And I think that the Biden administration, I hate to say it, but I think that they're naive here because, you know, in the words of, of, of you know, Senator Marco Rubio, I, I think he is right, where they gave up somebody who was very valuable to us and they gave him up to a tyrant who's not likely to change his ways. He's not likely to hold fair elections this year. He's not likely to allow Maria Machado, an opposition leader, on the ballot. Right. Maria Corina Machado is, being the opposition yes. leader who won the opposition yes. primary. And, and Maduro right. is so far not letting her be on the ballot to face him in the presidential election later this year. Yeah. Correct. And, and there were no guarantees there. And there's no guarantees on a lot of this other intangible stuff. And it's not so intangible because it's at the root of why this deal was made. It's try to you know build better relations with Venezuela, you know, start the healing, 
And of course, the most important thing is to make sure that we have good relations with Venezuela so that we can capitalize on their oil supply and vice versa. Right. And American companies can work with PDVSA, the state-owned oil company, on further oil explorations. There are sanctions in place, as you and your listeners know. Well, we've uh, seemed to have lost Jay again, but he, I, I, I agree with his point that, uh, you know, there there is a lot of controversy swirling around this this prisoner swap involving Saab because Saab was such a high level criminal suspect uh, in, in, in alliance with with the Venezuelan regime. And we should point out, as Jay mentioned earlier, that U.S. prosecutors themselves who were involved in this case were not happy uh, about Saab's uh, release. And Jay, are you are you there back with us? Yes, I'm, I'm okay, here. Okay, yes, Sorry. he's back with us. Let, let's let me just ask you then, real quickly, um, what what about what are the what are the big concerns now that he in just the 15 seconds we've got left? What's the biggest concern about having Saab back in Venezuela now? Well, I, I think the biggest concern is is that they lost an opportunity, of course, here right. to try to squeeze him and get him to flip and to talk about all right. the bad things. In Venezuela. Jay, 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 for time, I have to leave it there, unfortunately. That's Jay fine. Weaver is the Miami Herald's federal justice reporter. Jay, happy new year. Happy new year to you. Thank you for having me. Finally on the roundup, we know last year's heat wave inflicted deadly bleaching on South Florida's coral reef. But WLRN's environment editor Jenny Stiletovich tells us there was good news on that front. The successful spawning of new, more resilient baby coral. Over the summer, something magical happened in a lab on Virginia Key. We got spawn! Oh, thank you. <laughs> Andrew Baker is a University of Miami Rosensteel coral scientist who's been working on breeding coral that can tolerate hotter oceans. He was one of dozens of researchers racing to save the coral. Baker had a little something more in mind. With some help... We got it together, didn't we? He was hoping to get them to spawn in his tanks. Nobody but you and me. <laughs> it's very white. Yeah. Under a full moon and the glow of infrared lights, he got his wish. Baker told me recently those corals are now thriving. He's hoping his babies grow up to be the first of new generations of coral better able to survive on a warming planet. For this mom of three, that's something I can appreciate. We'll do it. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Amy Sanchez with help from Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming, and she answered the phones today. Thanks. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Ives was the show's technical supervisor today. Thank you, Richard. And I'm Tim Padgett. Have a great weekend, a great new year, and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, obrigado. WLRN Public Media.